Thanks be to God. Please be seated and join me uh, once again in prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us the sacred scriptures. Thank you that they are holy and inspired, life-giving, inerrant. Father, we thank you that they contain such incredibly good news. We pray this morning that as we think about the good news of this passage, that you would send your spirit to give each one of us the gift of understanding. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What is the best news that you have recently received? Maybe you've received the good news of a pay raise. Maybe you've received the great news that one of your close friends is getting married. Maybe you've received the great news that another grandchild is on the way. Or maybe you've received the great news that you just purchased the winning lotto tickets. We all love receiving good news. Sometimes the news is so good that we doubt that it's true. And so we ask for proof. Is your friend really pregnant? Yes. Prove it. Well, here's the pregnancy test. Did you really get those winning lotto tickets? Yes. Well, prove it. Here's the numbers. Did you really receive a, a huge pay raise? Well, yes. Okay, prove it. Well, here's my pay stub. When we receive really, really good news, it often seems so good, so amazing, that we ask for proof. And that brings us to this incredible passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. This text contains the best news that anyone, anywhere could ever hope to hear. This text contains the good news of the gospel. According to William Tyndale, the famous Bible translator, the gospel is good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Yes, the gospel is that great. It's incredibly good news. It's such good news that we often doubt that it's true. And so we ask for proof. Can you prove that this good news is really true? What is the proof? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that the good news of Christianity is true. Four points this morning. The priority of the gospel, the presentation of the gospel, the proof of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. First is the priority of the gospel. How important is the gospel? The Apostle Paul says it's of first importance. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul does not say, the gospel is pretty important, kind of important, maybe you should pay attention to it. No, he says, the gospel is of supreme importance, it's of first importance. Well, why is the gospel so important to the Apostle Paul? Why is it one of the most important doctrines in the Bible? 
because the gospel is the key to unlocking all of our spiritual problems, every one of them. Roughly 17 years ago at the Central Church, GCF Central down by Gonzaga, we acquired a new building, although the building at that point was roughly 60 years old. And it had all kinds of nooks and crannies and separate outbuildings, and there were doors and locks everywhere. There was a boiler room, an office space, classroom space, more office space, more closets, bathrooms. Pretty much every door had a lock on it, and because the building was so old, there were at least 10 different keys to open up all these buildings. So when you were going from the office to the bathroom, you had to have a bazillion keys on you to actually get to the bathroom. It was very inconvenient. So we called American Lock and Key and said, could you come and rekey all these locks and put every lock on the same key? So now, there's one key that unlocks all the doors in that old, rusty building. One key is all you need. The gospel is the one key to our growth and godliness. It's all we need. You and I must apply the gospel, the details of the gospel, to every area of our lives. The gospel is the key to conquering crippling anxiety. The gospel is the key to mending a broken marriage. The gospel is the key to resolving conflict. The gospel is the key to overcoming the enslaving power of lust. The gospel is the key to conquering depression. The gospel is the key to destroying our love of money and our love of things. And the gospel is the key, most importantly, to reconciling you and I to God. The gospel is the key that unlocks everything in the Christian life. But sadly, many Christians think that they can move on from the gospel. The gospel is just for new Christians or non-Christians. They think it's just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. You and I will never, ever, ever move on from applying the gospel to our lives. Others make the mistake of assuming the gospel. They just assume that it's true and move on. The famous New Testament scholar D.A. Carson was once describing a historic Christian denomination in America. And he said this about the denomination. The first generation taught the gospel. The second generation assumed the gospel. And the third generation lost the gospel. When you and I assume the gospel, that's spiritual suicide. The gospel is the key to unlocking everything for the Christian. Well, Dave, that's great, but what is the gospel? You haven't actually explained it yet. You're right, I haven't. That brings us to the second point. So first, the priority of the gospel. Second, the presentation of the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? How does Paul present this gospel to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4? Let's look there. Again, Paul writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, the gospel is literally good news. Well, good news of what? Paul defines this incredibly good news for us very carefully in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. 
This is one of the best succinct statements of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. Paul says that the gospel is simply this fact, that Christ died for our sins. Those five words are some of the most important words you'll ever hear. Christ died for our sins. He did not merely die for you. He died instead of you. Crucial distinction. That implies that you and I deserve to die because of our sins. Yes, God is that holy. God is so holy and righteous and just that he requires punishment for sin. He's a good and righteous judge. And every good and righteous judge is going to require punishment when a crime is committed. And all of us have sinned in thought, word, and deed, even this morning, in many ways. And because God is holy, he requires that we die and are eternally separated from him. But the good news is this. Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. The heart and soul of Christianity is this idea of substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us in our place. Let's look at the next phrase, verse four. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was buried after he died. In other words, he literally died. He didn't just swoon on the cross or pass out. He actually died, he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day. More on that in a moment. What is the gospel? In the simplest form, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross in our place. On July 31st, 1941, a prisoner escaped from the Auschwitz concentration camp. To punish all the other prisoners, the Nazis chose 10 men and told them that they would be starved to death in an underground bunker. One of the men selected for the bunker was named Francis. And Francis cried out in a loud voice, please, no, have mercy on me. I have a wife and I have children. Please don't make me die. Moved by compassion, a diminutive 47-year-old Polish man with wire-framed glasses stepped forward and said, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have any children. I would like to die instead of this man. Without hesitation, the Nazis sent this man, instead of Francis, into the bunker to starve to death with nine other men. Very shortly, these men died of starvation. And shortly thereafter, I'm sorry, uh, 41 years later, on October the 10th, 1982, Maximilian's sacrifice, this priest, was honored in St. Peter's Square with a massive throng of people. Present in this massive crowd was Francis, together with his wife, his children, and his grandchildren. Maximilian subbed Francis out and subbed himself in. Francis was supposed to die, but instead, Maximilian died in Francis's place, sparing his life. Jesus Christ does the same thing for us. 
We deserve to die. Unlike Francis in this story, we do deserve to die. But Jesus, moved by extravagant love and grace and compassion, came and suffered and died for us on the cross. And because Jesus died in our place, there is nothing left for you and I to do. Every other religion in the world is spelt with two letters, D-O, do this, say this, pray this, chant this, visit this place, do, 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 and you'll be accepted by God. But Christianity is spelt with four letters, D-O-N-E, done, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary in his life and his death and his resurrection to ensure that you and I could be forgiven of all of our sins and spend all eternity in Christ's presence. Jesus' last words on the cross were not, you know, I worked pretty hard to save you. I got the process started. Now you go on and work a little harder for me. No. On the cross, Jesus said, it is is finished, which means there is nothing more for us to do, nothing but receive, receive with the arms of faith. Christianity is not good advice. Do better, try harder. Christianity is good news of all the things that Christ has done to save us. Because Jesus died in our place, we will never, ever, ever experience the punishment that we deserve. Here's the good news. Because God is perfectly righteous and just, he will never, ever, ever punish his son and then punish you. That'd be unjust because his son paid for all your sins. Therefore, there is no justice or wrath remaining for you. The son took every last drop of the father's wrath in your place. Now there's nothing but love and acceptance from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And because Jesus died in our place, we can know God. This is the best part of the good news. It's amazing that God forgives all of our sins, but that's a means to an end. He forgives all of our sins so that we can have a satisfying, life-giving relationship with Almighty God. That's the good news of the gospel, relationship with God, the thing that our hearts were made for. Nothing else will satisfy us except for relationship with God. We will never, ever be satisfied with more fame or more wealth or more power or more control or more pleasure. Our hearts, my heart, your heart was hardwired to receive joy, satisfaction, and delight in God and God alone. And the gospel has made that possible. Well, Dave, the gospel seems like great news, but how do I know that what you're saying about Jesus is true? Prove it. Prove it. Which brings us to the third point. The priority of the gospel, the presentation of the gospel, and third is the proof of the gospel. The proof of the gospel's power and truthfulness is the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. What do I mean? Since Jesus rose from the grave, it proves that he was perfect. It proves the Father was satisfied with his sacrifice. It proves that what he said is true, and it proves that he is God. Well, what is the proof for the resurrection? 
And the answer is the eyewitnesses. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 8. Paul writes, And that he, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The key word in this paragraph is the word appeared. The word appeared appears four times in this passage. Paul repeats this word to make a point. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, according to verse 5. He appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, most of whom have fallen asleep, according to verse 6. Why does Paul add that part about the ones who are still alive? Because he wants the Corinthians to go and talk to them. Go and talk to the eyewitnesses. They saw Christ. He appeared to them. They saw him with their own eyes. And they're still alive. Please go talk to them. And you'll find out that there is proof that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the grave. Now, a few weeks ago, Terry Meyer, our youth director, said, if over 70 kids come to youth group, I will eat a live goldfish. How many kids came? 77. So, the rumor is, is that Terry ate a live goldfish. Then he washed it down with Diet Mountain Dew, which is actually what killed the fish, not Terry's stomach acid. Now, I wasn't there, but my kids were all there, and there were 77 eyewitnesses, and many of them are here this morning. So maybe you're thinking, well, Dave, I don't believe that Terry would do something that disgusting, that he would actually eat a live goldfish. That's so cruel, that poor little goldfish. Maybe you have doubts. Well, if you do, I would say to you, go and talk to the folks that were there. There were 77 eyewitnesses. Many of them are here this morning. You can talk to William Farley, you can talk to Carson Griffin, Kayla Stewart, many others were there that evening. They saw it with their own eyes. Talk to them. They're eyewitnesses. There's eyewitness testimony that Terry did that disgusting, ungodly thing. (laughs) The people Paul's referring to in the story are eyewitnesses, and he's challenging the original audience to go and talk to these people. Christians believe in the resurrection not because of blind faith, because we've run out of evidence, and we believe because of the extraordinary evidence that Christ actually rose from the grave. Here's a brief summary of the evidence. Monotheistic Jews who are passionately opposed to worshiping a man start to worship Jesus Christ as he teaches and performs miracles. Jesus dies. This is confirmed by at least five non-Christian sources of the time. The disciples end up completely dejected and afraid. Three days later, Jesus rises from the grave, and then he appears to more than 500 people in 12 different locations over a period of 40 days. These eyewitnesses are transformed and full of faith. Many of them are so convinced of the evidence for the resurrection that they are willing to go out and proclaim the gospel and lose their lives. And the resurrected Christ continues to radically transform millions of people around the world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, skeptics are very, very welcome here, by the way, but if you're a skeptic, you have the burden of proof. You must be willing to prove or provide first century evidence 
contrary to the gospel accounts. You must disregard eyewitness testimony. You must put forward an alternative theory that you can back up with at least three or four first century sources. And you must explain why two billion people worldwide are wrong. Now, I understand, Dave, that there's proof for the gospel's truthfulness. I understand the resurrection. I believe that it's true. But my life is a mess. Is there any hope for me? Yes. And that brings us to the fourth and final point. The priority of the gospel, the presentation of the gospel, the proof of the gospel, and finally, the power of the gospel. What does the gospel have power to do? Transform incredibly rebellious, sinful, broken people. How do we know? 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11. The apostle Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, and worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Before the apostle Paul was a Christian, He was a violent opponent of Christianity. He went around rounding up Christians, doing physical violence to them, having them taken to jail and even put to death. The Apostle Paul was the least likely candidate to convert to Christianity. He hated Christ and he hated Christians. But in Acts 9 on the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul has a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ. And his life and the rest of the world was forever changed. When the Apostle Paul encountered the risen Christ, he repented of his sins, cried out to God for mercy, and God transformed an incredibly rebellious, broken, proud man. And here's the good news. If the risen Christ can transform the Apostle Paul, the risen Christ can transform anyone. And I mean Anyone. I don't care how broken you are, how rebellious you are, what you've done in the past. The risen Christ has the power to transform anyone. He is the divine Son of God. Nothing is too hard for Him. But you must be willing to humble yourself. Cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I admit. My sins separate me from you. My life is a mess. I need your help. Would you please come and forgive me and change me, adopt me, and use me for your purposes? The risen Christ loves to answer that prayer of humility. If you're here this morning and you want to be changed, the risen Christ is ready, willing, and eager to transform you. He has the power, and he proved it by rising from the grave. Some news seems too good to be true. If someone informs you that a long-lost uncle just died and left you $2 billion, you'd probably ask for proof before you got too excited, wouldn't you? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news that anyone, anywhere, could ever hope to hear.
It's the good news that God the Father, motivated by love, sent his only son to suffer and die in your place, which means he loves you. And when Jesus died, by the way, he had your sins in mind. He died for individuals. And then Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving that the gospel is true. The proof of the gospel. The proof of the power of the gospel. The proof of the truth of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.